Life and Leadership with Bobby Kerr, a News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Welcome to another episode of Life and Leadership with me, Bobby Kerr. My guest this time is a fintech entrepreneur who sold his payment processing business, RealX, for over 100 million euro. After 14 years in Ulster Bank, he risked it all to go out on his own, and at one stage, his company was processing over 25 billion euro worldwide. He now owns a digital account business called Fire.com, invests in early startups, and much more. I sat down with Colin Lyon in his office located in the Dog Patch Labs in the beautiful CHQ building on Customs House Quay in Dublin to talk life and leadership. So Colin Lyon, CEO and founder of Fire.com, welcome to Life and Leadership. Thank you, Robbie. Great to be here. Now, we want to start, go way back, if you can even remember these times, but tell us about your early days growing up, Colm. Uh, were you from a business family? What was your, what were your early influences? Um, I grew up in Clontarf with my mum and dad, obviously, and five brothers. Five brothers? Five brothers, Where did yeah. you come in that? Uh, no, I was referred to as number four of six. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and occasionally introduced by my father as number four of six, Wow, which so, was nice. So uh, that, uh, that's a happening house yeah. full of lads all yeah. playing sport and doing all that stuff? Uh, yeah, five of us were born in six years, I think. Very, very busy, you could imagine, for mum and dad. We had another brother born a couple of years later. It was very, very busy, yeah, and yeah. It, was, <laughs> it was packed. Good. <laughs> How did you get on at school? Were you studious? Were you into sciences? What was your... I'm just trying to get a, a sense of you in the, yeah. in, in the pre-university days. I, I think the general, maybe common theme would have been could do better um, on the old reports that would have got in. One famous one that actually said idler on it. And uh, so, and I think in... In terms of academic kind of outcomes, no, I wouldn't have been up there at all. In fact, I think the first time round, I possibly didn't even matriculate for the Leaving Cert, so it, was, it wasn't, wasn't to be. So I went back and repeated the Leaving Cert. And how did you find UCD? Commerce was your first uh, degree, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after I did the, the trial run, if you like, um, for the Leaving Cert, I, I actually had met John Teeling um, when... We had a newspaper round and I was delivering papers to John. And um, it was he actually who you know, asked me what had happened when I did the Leaving Cert. And I explained to him that I hadn't got through. And he said, I think you should go back and do it again. And he suggested to me that I should study a business organization. It was called Accounting and Economics. And he asked his wife, Deirdre, you know, what else can Colm do? And she's art. So, so, so they were my four honours when right. I got... And then... I got into UCD to study commerce. Back in those days, it was in the old point system, it was 16 points. So four C's took you in to study commerce, yeah. which is what I got, you know. So it was marginal, <laughs> just enough. And did you find that your your relationship with academia maybe changed slightly when you went to college in that maybe you were now on a on a career path, maybe you were maybe more interested in what you were doing than you were at school? I think, honestly, I didn't think about it that much, really. Right. You know what I mean? You know, running discos in the student's union bar and stuff like that, so there were important things to be done. But I, I did like college. I loved UCD from the moment I walked in there. I loved the campus, and I loved the, the whole, you know, the lecture theatre, all those things about it. I really just was immediately smitten by that for yeah. some reason. And and um, I really, really liked it. And I, I actually found the, the subject matter actually quite interesting. And, and I, I enjoyed that too. And I think I possibly went in thinking 
I might be an accountant. And after a couple of months, I realised I'm not going to be an accountant. That, that and that was fine too. And and um, and I think over the course of the the three years of commerce, and I did a master's in management science as well. I got to like the the mathematical side of it a lot more, and I got to like the at that stage, believe it or not, this was um, 1984. I think they had just introduced microcomputers. They called them into the campus, so we would have been the first year. Of, of people that had access to PCs, basically. Yeah, you mentioned John Teeling there, and I was yeah. going to come to him later, but I think yes. we talk about yeah, him yeah, now yeah. because he was a lecturer in UCD. Many would know him from from for his entrepreneurial, uh, both in whiskey and mining. He's a bit of a legend, and by all accounts, you knew him from Clontarf. You knew him in UCD, and I know one thing about him. He's always been great at keeping in touch with people who he lectured. So tell us about your relationship with him, because I think he's a fascinating man. Yeah, no, I only spoke to him the day before yesterday. So your point is well made. Like, he's he's phenomenal at staying in touch. And uh, um, as I say, I first met him when he was a neighbour. And and when my brothers and I were doing the newspaper round, um, he would have been a customer. And there were were two particular customers that we always used to have to mind. And John Teeling was one. And PJ Mara was the other one. Oh my and, God. Uh, and we would get a phone call sometimes early in the morning, you know, asking for the newspapers to be brought to certain houses before they got to other houses, you know, to make sure that things were, <laughs> were well known. So, so, um, and John, John would have been obviously very influential right at a young age when, you know, he would have told me about UCD, told me about commerce and, you know, and with him and Deirdre's assistance, I, I, that's the journey that I took. And then while he was in college, a lot of people, not just myself, would have found him. He, he didn't really teach you what was in the books, yeah. you know. And it was always a frightening moment when you sat down to do his exam where you'd see, you know, what's the function of the board of directors? And you realised he never told us that, you know. But He's he expected a you, life man. He, and he expected you to read yeah. the book. You know, he didn't have to explain what was in the book to you, which made sense. But he would come in and he would do a, a portfolio of shares, and he would come in at the start of the term and he would say, I'm going to do a low risk, medium risk and high risk portfolio. So the high risk is for your brother who's got plenty of money, the low risk for your granny and so on. So he'd have personas around the risk. Then every week he'd come in and he would trade shares in the Dublin stock market. Yeah. And by the end of the term, you know, the low risk portfolio had gone up by 5%, the medium by 10 and the high risk by 20 or something. And he was on the and money most years. All the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was phenomenal. And I think a whole load of people kind of realized like and he used to talk with such passion about when he'd pick up the pink newspaper as he called it the financial times and he realized that you could own part of a company a public a member of the public can buy shares in companies and you can be a part owner of these companies and that's an amazing thing that you can do and if you pick the right ones obviously you know you you can make an investment that's quite successful so i think he he i mean and i remember him introducing myself and some friends then into stockbrokers and we became like traders in the stock market, like at a very, very young age, you yeah. know. And that was that was that was John. I mean, John was just—he yeah. was instrumental, I think, in influencing hundreds of people that went through college. Uh, you know? Absolutely, he was phenomenal. Like, yeah, yeah. How did you find your way then from college into Ulster Bank? Was there anything in between? There was a small the discos thing. in the in college the, bar and the, stuff. The, obviously on the side, but was there? There was. Um, it, it, that was a really bleak. Era, um, yeah, yeah, it really was like, and I think for so my we're talking bro- late eighties. You're talking no, uh, nineteen eighty six. I think I or yeah. eighty five. I graduated from the masters, and in nineteen eighty five, four my brothers had emigrated at this stage. 
Um, and it was like, that's what most people did, right? So you, most people just went away and, and that was the, the normal, if you like. And I got a job then in the microcomputer center out in UCD, which was the old bar, which had been a prefab that had been repossessed or something. And um, and in the microcomputer center then, I'd started doing some work for some of the uh, professors and the academics that were in UCD at the time um, with the programming skills that I had developed. And I did, and I was, a, I think, a tutor in, in for, for the first and second years, if you like. So I did a bit of teaching as well out in UCD. That was after I completed the master's and I did that for, I think it was 18 months and I could not get a job as a master's graduate for 18 months. I was still looking for work. And then, of course, it was like the buses. I applied and I think I got three offers in the one week. One, which is interesting, was um, from NASA to go join the, the NASA development. No <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose, um, well, I, I, I was had other um, attractions to keep me here at the time. And, and so I didn't I didn't want to emigrate. And uh, so I didn't emigrate. And I got a job with Ulster Investment Bank at the time. And it was um, I think it was a, a possibly a one year fixed term contract. That length, I stayed for 14 years then. So, and it was a, a job as a business analyst. Right. So it was a kind of a traditional kind of business analyst type role. So what did a business, business analyst do in those days in Ulster Bank? You were, you were down to really understand what the requirements of the, uh, the end user would be. So what did the people who were trading on the desk need? What information did they need? What, okay. you know, how would you present that information to them in a more meaningful and timely way so that they could make better trades more frequently? Um, how would you make sure that any items that are exceptional are reported upon and people capture them? So the, that was the era of computerization. You know, I mean, yeah. there was no computers on our desks back then in, <clears throat> in, in the bank. And, and so it was like the next, you know, 10 years would see this madness and this proliferation of, of, of technology throughout the institutions. And, and, and was it important then to the detail around that job? You were providing information to guys up on the dealing floor, so accuracy, yeah, you know, you, you, the way you presented things. Did yeah. you learn a lot? I think I learned a huge amount about. Obviously, I learned about some of the instruments themselves. So everything from you know lending or interest rate swaps or whatever they might have been at the time, deposits and the different types of deposits, and, and you learn about that. But I think what most of all what I learned was was methodology, was a way to do things, yeah. and, and in mm. particular. This thing about, um, I think one of the, the, the things that I've learned best is not to be afraid of the blank page. So, so when, when you meet somebody and they have this issue or this problem, but they can't really articulate it all that well, they, they need help with that. And often what people will do is they'll dive in to trying to come up with a solution instead of actually just following a path that takes them through a journey of discovery, you know, evaluation of the options, uh, uh, you know, and, and a proper analysis of, of what needs to be done and then coming up with a conclusion. And I think that's something that still to this day, that I think my time in a big institute, it wasn't the retail bank now. So it, yeah. was, it, was, the, it was a part that was the called investment the, the, the investment arm. So it was a bit more. You were very focused on the on the markets and very focused on on lending, um, you know, uh, rather than the the retail of the, of providing accounts and services to people. That wasn't that. So it was, um, and then I did a stint down in Lombard and Ulster for a couple of years, which was asset finance, and then went back um, to to Ulster Bank just at the time we was moving into George's Key, you know. Yeah. So it was it was, it was a good stint, you know. But I think you spend fourteen years there, and you, you kind of realise then, right now I've I've done that now. You know. How many promotions did you get over those 14 years? Where did you end up from? Um, <laughs> I, I ended up as the, what was called the head of central IT. Right. So I, I, there was a, I think there were 
six steps on the ladder. And I managed to get one every year after about two years. So I got and it every year. that's probably one of the reasons that kept you there, was it? That you were, there was opportunity within the bank in those days uh, yeah. for you? I think I didn't maybe realize it at the time, but certainly the bank afforded me great opportunity to learn, right? And to learn. And the projects that I would have been assigned to vary quite greatly. And, and, and that's where I think, you know, I was just simply given the problem, you know, and then I had to work out, like, how are we going to solve this? Yeah. And back then, I think there were kind of um, industry methodologies that people used. And, and they're, you know, they're probably called product based stuff today and product led growth today. And there's new names on these things. But in essence, they're really just the very, very same thing. Yeah. And the whole the whole, I think, premise of that lesson for me was don't ever suffer from premature judgment. Like don't don't decide when you don't have the information because you're going to get things wrong yeah. and make sure that you do things in it. And sometimes you find that that structure actually brings more innovation than you think that innovation needs unstructured thought. Yeah. But in actual fact, innovation can really, really take off where, where you structure yourself and when you organize your thinking, you know, and that I think was was for me. One of the great learnings was the appreciation and the, of the need for design and methodology in your decision making. Yeah. What about the politics of working in somewhere like Ultra Bank, a big organization, a big corporate structure, you know, versus almost what you've done since? So you talk about the structure, you talk about, you know, the politics, the, the getting on in there, waves of surviving ways of, you know, uh, getting fulfillment out of the job. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think I was very fortunate to have um, an immediate boss, Michael. Uh, he's passed away now, God rest him. And Michael would have been um, a great, I suppose, minder of me. And, and, and he would have kept me away from that. Yeah. Because I don't think I would be very good at that, you know. Uh, at, at, at the, 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 and, and certainly these institutions, because they're so big, they do tend to be political. Uh, yeah. there, there tends to be an element of politics in everywhere. You know, and so. w- at any stage, would you have struggled with authority or anything like that? Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you keep yourself from not getting fired or whatever, um, on the basis that you sound to me as somebody who wants, you know, who's fairly driven, wants to do your own thing, and that maybe... You know, that's, you know, authority might be a problem a little bit along the way. I think I was buffeted a bit, you know, by the people around me, which was which was a good thing, you know, so they they knew, um, I suppose. uh, But I wasn't I wasn't a maverick now, but I certainly at certain stages, in fairness to them, I got the opportunity to do things that I wanted to do. Yeah. So I put Ulster Bank on the web. You know, I registered the domain UlsterBank.com. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I Ulster Bank, believe it or not, were the world's first bank to publish live internet rates, FX rates on the internet Were they? without having to press the browser to refresh. Right? <laughs> and and we used um, a product and it was um, a business that provided us with the technology to enable that to happen. And I remember that's good because now the bank is letting me do that stuff and I really enjoyed that type of thing. I got to go to New York actually and to tell that story in the, the Twin Towers, in fact, and I got to present how Ulster Bank became like the first bank in the world to publish wow. live FX rates online. And which what is are amazing. your thoughts when you see them leaving the market? Uh, I, it is beyond tragic. Yeah. I think it's awful. I it, think that like it took and it takes so long, right? It's a real tragedy. Um, and it's a tragedy like in so many different yeah. aspects. Like we could talk about this for a, a good while because. Like f- from a, from a, the first instance, their stuff is actually quite good, 
because right? they come from RBS NatWest, right? And they benefit from the relationship and being a subsidiary of a big bank in the UK. Um, things like some of the apps that they've brought to the market here are actually above that which the incumbent banks provide, you know, and they're, they're more, they're better basically, better products uh, and more robust projects, uh, products and products that tend not to fail as much as well. And I think their standards were very high. They, and the, probably what's even more tragic is that we won't see anybody come back in and take their place. And, and that's what makes it worse when Absolutely. somebody leaves. You so know? there's a void there. It's, it's, it, it, from, from my point of view, it's like the issue that we've got in this market right now isn't one of competition, it's one of access. Like you do not, people no longer have, I believe, the basic fundamental access to the payment products and services that they need. Like the the quality of what's out there is ridiculously poor. You know, it's just bad, and and it's 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 the way in which things like the secure customer authentication, you know, is implemented. The way in which you have to sign up for accounts. The way in which you need to onboard. All those things are substandard, right? Mm. And and when we're taking out competition in the market, it just paves the way for things to get even worse. And I know you say we could talk about it all day. We'll finish on this bit on it, but. You know, do you think that Ulster Bank, when you look at the banks now coming back to profit and you look at how they're performing, do they get their timing wrong in, in, in that, like, if they had waited, uh, things could have got better? I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a decision for them. I can see why. Ireland is the size of Manchester. I know. Right. So you're not going to make a bank and open it up in Manchester, right? <laughs> and like the most important thing that can happen now is that for the Irish consumer, be they businesses or personal, we need to see a proliferation of people coming in and de- but basically completely unbundling banking. So we're not going to see other institutions come in, right, to take over and to make banks here. So what we need to see is hundreds and thousands of companies emerge into the market that will take all the sweet things away from the banks. Right? Yeah. Take away the FX, take away the mortgages, take away the car loans, take away the payment processing, right? And compete at different levels within the banking community. And that's what we really need to see happen. We'll come back to that because I think it's important uh, while we see the future of banking and financial services. So let's come back to that. When did you decide to leave Ulster Bank, Column? Uh, that was in uh, 1999. There was a thing called the Millennium Bug, um, I which it. I think was invented by the IT staff. And, um, to, to the, and we were on retention bonuses. So basically for the euro, which came in in 1999, um, and then the Millennium on the 1st of January 2000. And then if you stayed till... Y2K. Y2K, yeah, 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 it was great. Uh, nothing broke. And uh, if, <laughs> if, if you waited until um, March 2000, you got a bonus. And the bonus was actually accumulated over four years. So it was substantial. You know, great. Right? Yeah, yeah, it was great. So um, on the 28th of March, I handed in my notice in 2000. And, and, and that was that after 14 years. And well, can I just ask, where were you in your personal life at that stage? Did you have, were you married? Did you have kids? Yeah. Three. So, um, three. Three. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so did you, were you betting the family house on this new venture post Ulster Bank or did you get enough by way of your bonus to maybe give this a go and see how we get on? How risky was your next move? The bonus would have kept us going for, it might have been the equivalent of a year or yeah. so. Do you know what I mean? So I would have had a year or so. Yeah. Uh, to try and but see what this worked. a fair degree of risk. Oh, yeah. and we had the mortgage and everything. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and um, I had to give back, obviously, the company car was gone as well. It doesn't mean so, so that, that was that. Um, I kept it for a week, actually, which is really weird because I can't work out why I did that. But anyway, and then I dropped it back in. And it was like, nobody asked me. Like, you know? 
<laughs> we kept it for oh a year. God, here's your car. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I, I think it, it was it was there was an element of risk there, but I think the markets at the time as well. Back at the start of 2000, the markets had started to come down, and and obviously throughout the year 2000 as well. Then things got really bad yeah. from a market's point of view. So it wasn't the time, and back then. There wasn't a startup scene of, you know, raising money and that type of thing either. Do you know what I mean? So, but there was an element of risk to it. But I think in my head at that stage, it was kind of like, you know, would I find another job if I had to? Yeah, I probably would have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was from that point of view, not that I wanted, like uh, the, the, the glorious objective that I set myself was, I want to set myself up so I don't have to go back and work, you know, in, in a big bank like that. Yeah. That was what I was trying to do. And can you tell us then about the Eureka moment, which I believe happened in Kennedy's pub up there on Weston Row when you decided what it is you were going to bring to the marketplace? I'd met some people in Ulster Bank who had described to me how a credit card transaction worked and I nearly didn't believe them. I I, I was going to say, really? Is that what actually happens? And they, they said, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, this is mad, like, um, because people were going to sell online at the time. And, and, you know, the Internet had arrived at this stage. I was ordering, you know, CDs from America, making your own CDs and getting them made for you and this type of thing. And I think this is amazing. Like, um, and so there was no doubt in my head that commerce would proliferate the, the Internet. And uh, but in terms of getting paid um, the solution that most banks had at that stage was to send out terminals to people yeah. and, and obviously that wasn't going to work right so you know it was the, the three beer mat story was basically I was with a friend of mine and he asked me what we were going to do and I said um, if you think the beer mat on the left is all the retailers who are selling online and the one on the right is the banks who process their payments for them or their transactions and we're going to be the mat in the middle and we're going to make it easy for the retailers to sell online and we're going to make it easy for the banks to take their business and he just said yeah that will work like it's it's and sometimes you're lucky because you come across a, a simplicity in a model, which is that simple. Yeah. And it's just like it, it made sense. And it made sense for both sides of the bow tie, if you like. Sometimes you describe it as the knot in the bow tie, and we wear that knot, you know. And, and well, you mentioned the, the simple, the simplicity of it all, because I, I think, again, going back to John Teeling, what he said was, that at the end of the day, like we often complicate things. Mm. Really, what you're trying to do is create something that somebody will buy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, if you yeah, keep yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah, that, yeah. you know, it, it does keep you focused. Yeah. Why would you go about developing something that no one wants? So it has to be customer led. Yeah, yeah. There's a great friend of mine as well who said to me, he summed it up in a slightly different way, but similarly, he said, um, there's two things that you do you make stuff and you sell stuff. Right, and in business, that's what you do. And he used to say that if you're anything else, you're an overhead. <laughs> so you want to be either making it or selling it because that's what you want to try and do in business. Yeah. So, so really, uh, uh, set up an online gateway, making it easy for business to accept credit cards on their website. That's effectively what what Realex did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I started. Um, Owen, who co-founded the business with me, Owen had worked in Ulster Bank. Um, he tells a, a funny story about he had long hair at the time and how he used to have to walk up the back stairs in Ulster Bank, um, which was funny. But, but so Owen, Owen started um, and Owen, you know, was a really talented technician and um, was able to construct the product from like we didn't have any money. And that was obviously an issue. And a friend of mine who became a director in the business as well gave me his car or his wife's car and gave me 16,000 pounds, I think it was at the time, to get basically our initial 
fundamental customer life, you know what I mean, which was direct ski. So Owen developed the, the, the software. We got huge support from a whole range of people around Dublin. So Who many was different the first people. Customer? Uh, direct ski. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, they, they were great. And I, I, I think they always knew that they were the first customer, but like we used to pretend, obviously, that we'd lose the customers. But, <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, but we, got, we got, I mean, I think one of the biggest things was the eye-opener for me was just the amount of help. Like I got the servers, I think it was on 18 months credit, you know. I, I got the software from Microsoft for free. I got the firewall on an extended, you know, warranty period. I got into a data center, Back then, there was no cloud, so you had to go into data centers. Yeah. But I got into the data center here through contacts that I had as well, who were extremely generous to me. And um, the likes of Arthur Cox gave me their office where I was able to make pitches to people and so on. So it was like, and, and you know... Did just, you raise any money in the early we, days? We, we, at the end of 2001, we raised 320,000 euro. And that was euro. Yeah, and that was the only money we ever raised. Yeah, 250,000 wow. Irish pounds, yeah. Wow. From, from family and friends. And there was a... It was a great night and Michael who was my boss in the bank was there and it was one of the big things was that like he took a real lead with regard to going to people asking them would they invest in Colin's business and it showed that when somebody else like that believes in you he's nearly more convincing with other investors than I was because he had the you know he had ultra credibility too and when Michael we were in Arthur Cox's office and myself and Owen were making the pitch about you know why you should invest we called it pay and shop back then it was a the, previous name of Relax and um, Owen had written a piece of software and up on the, the, the screen we could see transactions coming through while I was talking and people were asking me what's on the screen behind you and we were saying well there's something happening in the US at the moment we've got a client over there and they're just having a sale and they're selling a bit more now and people said so you're making money because somebody in the US is like doing more business right yeah. now and we said yeah but we didn't think like anything about that we just said yeah that's what we do like you know so what's, what's you your question competitors at that stage or there were in in the US and in the UK people were coming out yeah g- right. g- with g- similar models. yeah 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 okay. very similar models yeah yeah so how then did you get ahead of those competitors in order to scale because you, you grew it quite quickly yeah what we had to do was we had to get um, the what are called the acquiring banks yeah so, so the, the, in other words we have to connect our system to the the the, the the merchant's bank, right, our, our processor, payment processor. So in other words, if you're dealing with Direct Ski or Aer Lingus or MotorTax or Paddy Power, Virgin Atlantic, we had to, they would use different card acquirers, they're called, to process their payments. So it could be, you know, WorldPay or AIB Merchant Services or Bank of Ireland Payment Acceptance or somebody. And th- th- they would have to route, we'd have to route those transactions. We had to be physically connected. Yeah. You know, we had to build infrastructure to connect us to them. So the most important thing for us to do was to get connected to those acquiring banks. Because once we got connected to them, we could then go to their customers and yeah. say, hey, we can make it easy for you. To, so once your yeah. connectivity at that level was where exactly. it was at. Exactly. And that was that, and that was what we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. We, we got into AIB Merchant Services were our first one. And then Bank of Ireland um, via Elevon. Um, and then we got into the UK banks. Yeah. And in, in those days, was it a, were you able to work with all the banks? You know the way some people don't like you working with it's, other um, with their competitors. How did you get around that? I, it, there might have been a tiny bit of that, but, yeah. but, but in, the, in what's called the card acquiring space on the payment side, you're not really dealing with the mainstream banks, right. but you're dealing with the processors who've taken that business or run that business for them. Okay. Right. So, so it's not it's not the core bank that you're dealing with. You know, it's not the credit institution. Life and leadership with Bobby Kerr. 
a News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. So, so tell us then about, you know, building the business uh, up to, that was like in what? 12, 13 years? Yeah, yeah. Um, you like you, Were you doubling in size every year? No, we, we went through spurts, I suppose, yeah. like any, any growing story. Like there was, you know, certainly in the initial phases, um, we, we built it all organically. Um, we, we, we had the team in Manor Street Digital Park, where another friend of mine had hosted us, given us an office. And um, we, we stayed there for a while. And then... As you know, we went up above the spar shops across the different parts of Dublin and where we, we, we got space and eventually then ended up in Sir John Rodderson's Key in a really nice office there. I, I think the, the we, we scaled up um, very much organically. We, were, we had a great relationship with the web development community. We had the acquiring banks and we were able to, you know, we were connected to them, which meant that we could go to their retailers. But then we discovered that the retailers who were selling online and the people who had online shops also had web developers who right. were a key stakeholder in deciding like where the retailer and who the retailer should use for their online payments. Yeah. yeah. So we spent a lot of time then. I was chairman of the Irish Internet Association for many years and um, I would have, you know, successfully used that, I suppose, as a as a, a way to build the brand as well and, 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 to, and to try and we had then a lot of web developers who signed up as partners with us who, who, who would do an integration to Relax Payments and then they would recommend us to all their clients you know okay. so that that way when they had a new client going online and wanting to take payments they say look I've done an integration into Relax so we'll go that way So was your main job in those latter days around relationships and building and maintaining them yeah. and developing them? I think like everybody else we got to a point where um, there was direct distribution so we were going and signing up the retailers ourselves directly right and we got some super work that we did, um, particularly with the likes of AIBMS, where we onboarded, you know, some giant clients like, you know, Virgin Atlantic Worldwide. We did their business for them in, you know, out of Ireland. Right? Yeah, we, were, we were processing all the payments for and they've got websites all over the world. They've got call centers all over the world. And with Paddy Power, with MotorTax, with their Lingus and um, with the AA insurance in the UK. So we had some really good clients. And then what happens is, is that you realize that your distribution is direct. And with that, there's a certain, there's only a certain speed that you can go at when you're going directly. And you have to build and build and build and build to, to try and make yourself go a bit faster. Yeah. So what happened was, in the last, I must have been about 2009 maybe, um, we found indirect distribution. In other words, we found through Global Payments in the UK, Santander and Elevon, we found partnerships where they were white labeling our platform and selling it to their customers. Okay. And now all of a sudden, we accelerated mm. the growth plans like in a couple of years before the, the sale, which so was your, super. So your engine basically was used then in By other them. banks yes. and other... Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is amazing, is it not, that I think by the, you said that at the time uh, you left Relix uh, processing $28 billion, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet a company that hardly anybody ever heard of. I know, it's mad. In that sense. Yeah, and, and it's... Um, I remember that there were days when um, I was talking about it the other night when uh, we would do, I think, about two and a half million transactions a day, you know, because it was like Cheltenham was on and Erlingus were having a sale all on the one day. Do you know what I mean? We said, oh, Jesus, lads, would you not coordinate, you know? Um, but, but like, it was, um, it was, and we had to have systems that would actually track and monitor our customers 
and we had all their names up in green. And then if if we didn't see a transaction from a customer within a predefined threshold of time, it would go orange, and then in a second, a couple of minutes later, it would go red. So and we'd say, Jesus, we're not seeing any transactions from Aer Lingus right now. What's gone wrong? You know, is it on their side? Is it on our side? Where where is the problem? And we had um, one of the most horrendous outages one day where we had just moved into our new office. We were all on a complete high. We were there about two months, I'd say, at this stage. And we had um, these things called, again, back in those days, you had to make your own infrastructure, right? So we were in a data center. We had all these pizza boxes, which were like all the servers that we had. And then we had all of our data stored in a disk array, it was called. And there were like various different slots where you could put in more disks if you wanted more space. You know what I mean? And these were what were called hot swappable, which means in theory you can take out one part of your disk, put it back in, and everything's hunky-dory. And of course, the engineer went in, took out the broken offending piece of array, and of course that put in the new one, and the new one, and the whole thing just comes oh collapsing dear. down. So Ouch. we said, and all these customers all start going red and nothing's working. And we had to say, right, what do we do? Well, we'll go to our contingency site. We hadn't quite checked that in a while. <laughs> so contingency site, can't get the data over to it. It's out of date. It's not up to scratch. So we can't do it. So the only choice we have is we need to fix what's gone wrong. And so to cut a long story short, we, we, we got it back up and running six hours later. And we had a, you know, we communicated to all of our customers. And what was resounding, really astounding at the time, was the, the level of, of understanding that our customers showed with regard to the problems that we had. And it was down to the fact that we communicated to them, like throughout the six hours, yeah. and told them exactly what we were doing. We then, after that, committed to building, you know, the dog's, takes. The, the dog's best. It's right, never right, going right, to happen again. Of, and so we became one of the first payment processors in the world to create what's called a live, live configuration, where we had two data centers remote from each other. And we were able to control, we got our own IP addresses from RIPE so that we could direct internet traffic to site A or site B yeah. at our leisure to both if we wanted to. <clears> right? And we were able to synchronize the data in 20 milliseconds between the two sites over the infrastructure that we built. And we had what's called N plus three. So we had three of everything in both sites as well. Right? So not just two, but three it's of everything. It's called learning the hard way. And, and I tell you, and, and that was one of the best things that we, be, that we had. That, that outage <clears> caused us to become one of the most reliable, the most secure, and one of the best pieces of infrastructure that I think we've, we've ever seen. Tell us about the decision maybe to, to sell, uh, you know, to exit. I think it was maybe 2015. That's right. Uh, it's a public figure, 115 odd million. Yeah. A big number at the time. Yeah. Everybody would have done well, including yourself out of it. Yeah. What was the motivation to get out? I think we, we had been talking for about a year or so, the management team and some of the key stakeholders. And um, we knew that we had reached, like we were growing like 20, 30% year on year at the time. And like, and as I say, the infrastructure was, was top class, you know, and um, we knew that we were, like this was good. And, and, and quality, you know, is in, in the business that I'm in, be it payments or, or, or now in fire with digital accounts, is quality is the number one, right? always the number one. And the revenue comes later. Yeah. You know, you've got to just be really good at what you do, you know, and you've got to believe that because um, you can never chase revenue at the expense of a control or at the expense yeah. of quality. You just can't do it. And so I think what happened was we thought that we might raise money to continue our expansion and remain independent. 
and in the process of trying to do that, and we did get two offers to invest in the firm, and we also got two offers to acquire the business. And and so we sat down as a team, and um, we just went round the room, and basically we had dinner, actually, and uh, we called it a reflection dinner, and, and we asked everybody, and when I asked everybody, would they rather raise money and continue, or would they rather sell and become part of a large financial institution? And everybody at the table said the latter. Right. And so my my opinion was <laughs> Let's irrelevant. Go. Let's go. <laughs> and yeah. um, I was obviously very pleased. I mean, I it, it, it was um, the global payments were uh, an outstanding buyer. They were, you know, that's what they do. They they basically buy companies, you know, and, and amalgamate them. So, so there was potentially at that time was there a lot of buyers? You the, say you had two offers, the, but was yeah? Is it could you have? Like, could you have gone to the market? And, uh, in a way, we did because we had we had advisors. Like, yeah. we, we had advisors from London who were who were helping us through the process, yeah. and, and they would have you know whittled it down to two yeah. on, on the purchase side. You know, yeah. once we decided that we were happy to sell, yeah. then they dismissed the, the the equity investments. You know, the foundation of Fire dot com is that what happens when you do a deal with yourself? That was part yeah, of. I, that. I think I think the, the, the guy. What happened was that the if Fire was actually a subsidiary of Relax at That's the time. What I mean. yeah, 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 and. Um, <laughs> When, when, when we met Global Payments, like as I say, Global Payments were they were like really professional in terms of what they did, and you know I was talking to their CEO um, directly, and uh, they just were um, unbelievably like um, good at what they do. You know what I mean? And it was very, and me, in fact, many of the people from Relax have gone on now to hold really senior positions in Global Payments worldwide, which is wonderful to see as well. And the Relax platform has become a core part of their worldwide infrastructure, right. which is brilliant. You know what I mean? Nice so it's, they they yeah. got what they wanted from it, and as part of the deal, we, we kind of didn't talk about it, and, and we always knew we were going to have to talk about it. Like what happens to fire as part of this deal, and I was kind of saying I'd really love to keep it, right? But I assumed that they wanted it, right? So I didn't want to put them off doing the deal on the basis that, like, yeah. by saying it. And then, of course, I learned that they didn't really want it because it was too early. It was venture, you know. It was a, it was a kind of like non-revenue making at the time, and so they're they're not you know going to invest. That's not their business. Just yeah. they, they, they they don't do that, and so it became you know all of a sudden there was a eureka moment. Like Colum, you can you can buy fire, and and we will buy the gateway component, and we split them out into two, and they were two separate companies anyway. Sure. So it was very clean. And so tell us about fire um, and yeah. where you're going with it. Like, how were you able to keep the same energy that you gave? to Relix with fire because often that can be difficult even with even when the yeah. will and the want is there sometimes you just aren't blessed yeah, yeah. with the same energy as the yeah. years go by I have a like a lot of support around me for a start like and I've got an amazing family and wife and kids who, who will be very supportive of what I do and also I've got a, a bunch of people that are close to me in business who have worked with me now for Decades, yeah. right? So it's not just me, yeah. right? It's important to say, right? Um, and and I also really love what I'm doing, right? So that helps a lot. So I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, Jesus, i got to go to work today, right? It's not like that. I'm very, I'm very lucky yeah. that it's not like that because I can understand why it might be like that. Um, ultimately, what really drives me is the vision of what it can be. Right. right? It's the vision of, of like when I'm going to sleep at night and I'm thinking like, what could this be? And I, I kind of, you know, and is that a daydream or is that real? You know, and I'm kind of thinking, do you know what? That could actually be real. And and so with fire, like there's a massive, you know, transition towards digitalization. People going digital, businesses going digital, like everything. And your your bank account is now on your phone, right? 
and there's, there's an obvious next step that like the accessibility of your bank account like through the technology that's now available is going to change the way in which people pay and get paid right because you won't need cards and you, you'll be tapping your phone and it'll come out of your account and go from your account to my account and it'll all be instant real time and we're, secure we're and safe we're close to that are we? we're, we're, we're getting closer right yeah. um, and I think there are still things in the way right um, that, that stop that from happening but what we're also seeing is that like all of our top customers, our big customers, all use what's called our API, our, 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 our interface. In other words, they connect their systems to their fire accounts. A friend of mine put it one day and he said, how come a bank like doesn't tell me when I receive a lodgement to my account? Like I've got to log in to see if I've been paid. When Google will tell me I was in the same restaurant that I'm in now two years ago, and what did I think of the menu? You know, like it's kind of like like so. So it's so dated that technology that's yeah. there, right? It's, when so you think about it, that's 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 yeah. It's yeah, it, the, that's, the opportunity is vast. So the opportunity so we call it a digital account, and businesses can open any number of accounts they need in sterling and euro, each with their own IBAN or code account numbers. They can issue any number of cards. They can control which account. Like the cards, the money comes from when they use the card if they want to, and they can change that, and they can do it all through an API. Every time money lands in a fire account, we automatically send you a message to your systems. You can update your system straight away, and you can even send back instructions to us as to what to do with that money. So you can completely automate all your reconciliations. You can automate all of your, you can automate all your payments that you receive into the account, and you can automate all the payments that you want to make out. You know, and it's really nice. Yeah. So, so in terms of. It being a user-friendly card at the end of the month, all the the everything is tabulated for you. It, yeah, and again, we're, we would be targeting businesses more than consumers. Yeah. So, so our our ideal customers are businesses, and um, and we had a we we had a disastrous time with Brexit. Brexit was just no good for us whatsoever. So Brexit set us back about two years, in, in all honesty, and a lot of money because we had to apply for a license in the UK as well, which we did. And then COVID wasn't great either, to be frank, right? And you know, it was another pain. And, and like, so I didn't expect the last few years, to be yeah. honest, right, when I started out. So if I'd known that they were coming, maybe I might have felt differently about it. But during lockdown then, we decided that we'd focus on, on getting business from two large institutions that we had opportunity with. So one... We don't name, but it's a very large bank in the UK. And what we do is we now do what's called their open banking payment acceptance, which means they have hundreds and thousands of retailers who get paid via card. What we do now is we've enabled them to go to market with a product that enables those retailers to get paid directly from people's accounts. Right. And that's all done by fire. And we do all the technical work and we do all the collection of the money work. And so that's a real credit to us as an institution to win a contract like that. And then for AIB Merchant Services here, um, we're providing them with a service in the UK um, to settle funds to their retailers on a daily basis. So again, those big enterprise clients are, are top class. Let's talk about the future of fintech, mm. the future of banking. You mentioned it earlier, and I think it's important maybe to capture this. So we've got all these banks, you know, uh, selling insurance, selling mortgages, and there's all different parts, some which are profitable, mm. some which are not. Um, do you see that banking is going to absolutely transform in the next decade? Just, I'd like to hear your yeah. thoughts yeah. on, 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 cause we've, we've, you've mentioned some things there yeah. that I think are going to be quite revolutionary. Yeah, I'm really glad I'm not a banker. Right, because I'm a payments person, right? So we don't do banking, yeah. you know, and that's that's something that I've kind of always stayed away from, you know, is credit and lending and yeah. everything that goes with that, because it's just it's not for me. You yeah. Know? Um. I, I as I said earlier, I really hope that um 
that we unbundle banking and, and that people, you know, start to shop around and to look for alternative providers for some of their banking, you know, and, and don't go to the one institution for everything anymore because it, there, it just, it, it, it really is just chronic like the state of the market here. It really is poor. And, and I, I but worry. But if we look at the N26 as the revolutes yes. and what they're doing, yeah. even that's surely an indication of the way things are going. Yeah, and there are two, you know, interesting companies that you've alluded to there, right? And, and um, you know, some of both of whom have their own challenges too, you know, with regard to managing the growth that they've had. You know sure. what I mean? And, um, and I think that, like, and they do come in and, and in a sense they, they might, you know, cherry pick certain demographics or whatever and try and get those people to sign up. But, but they're all chipping away at the, at they're, the, they're, at the they're chipping banks. away. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, it, will that mean that somebody will go take their mortgage from these institutions or, or will they look for a mortgage provider, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's where I think I'm a big fan of niche players and bringing niche players into the market, you know, to try and give people more choice so that people have, again, they don't go to one institution to do all their financing, but they'll go to a number of different institutions and they'll say, right, we've now reached the point where, like we always say to people, use fire and a regular bank account. Like we're not a replacement. We're not yeah. even, we're not a bank account anyway. We're a digital account. So, mm-hmm. so use both. And I, I think, and I hope into the future, like I I'm, would be particularly concerned about the lack of, and this is very, very specific, but the lack of regulated fintech companies starting up in Ireland, right? The so lack of. The lack of, right? There are no new fintechs who are regulated, right? There are loads of fintechs out there who provide technical services, right? But if you're a fintech who say... And regulation. Re- regulated means you need a license from the central bank. W- regulation's right? a hornet's nest, is it not? Regulation is a challenge, right? Yeah. But it, it can be overcome, yeah. right? And, and, and what we have in this country is a, a complete gap here in that there are no new regulated startups coming to the market and that's a real problem I think in this country because people will never get the choice they'll never get the options right if we don't encourage new players to come in sure. and to take risk and to, and, like, and people like me to, to take the risk and, and to who spend sorts money. that the Department of Finance the Central but Bank I, I think they're, they're all stakeholders in the conversation the Competition Consumer Protection Commissioner the Department of Finance and the Central Bank are all stakeholders and I would liaise with them always from time to time and put forward my view that I think that think a better job can be done right now this you know some of them don't the central bank doesn't have a competition mandate so we're not arguing that it should right but at the same time there are things that could be done that would make the the startup community and the regulated fintech startup community you know a better place to, to in which investors would be prepared to put the money and that's what's key, right? Is that people are prepared to put the money in, I feel, but they need to see that environment, you know, in, in a different light. You've been an investor uh, post Relix yeah. in, in lots of startups. Yeah. What's your philosophy there? Uh, what do you look for? What, are, you, are, um, you, are you particularly interested in the end product? Are you interested in the process, the people? What, it, what makes you, what attracts you to a startup? I think it'd be primarily the people yeah. um, at, at that stage. Um, and because the people, if the people, if the product doesn't work, it's kind of okay, right? And if the people don't work, then I've got it wrong. Yeah, is what I think, right? Yeah. So I have to you make can change sure the product. Yeah, to the yeah, right yeah, person. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and we've done a bit of that. Um, we're also a limited partner in a whole range of different funds as well. Where we're we're, uh, we're so helping back in that regard because we 
would invest in third party funds who in turn invest in the startup sector as well. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So, so that's, that's a good point. And that's of what probably maybe a, well, it, it's, it's a way of participating at a more cautious level, maybe. It, well, yeah. more cautious, but also less overhead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 But no, I do like the early stage stuff and there is some, some interesting companies there. Whether we'll, continue doing a whole lot of that or not I don't know you know because there is a running the family office is also a big job then yeah. you know I mean? and you need to be careful that you don't end up making it a huge job you know yeah, yeah. two more questions of if, course. if I may Colm um, and we asked this to everybody who participated mm. in, in life and leadership and um, the first one is what would you say to your younger self uh, that young lad up in UCD with John Teeling maybe I should have gone to that should have gone to that extra lecture what advice would you give to your younger self if you, if you reflect on that. You know, it's going to be good. Um, that's what I'd say to myself, yeah. right? Um, you're, you're going, you're lucky, right? And, and, um, I, I'd say never, ever, ever take anything for granted because, like, you're very fortunate where you've come from, what you do and, and how you've gone on. So, you know, be, you know, be grateful. Be grateful and mind yourself, you yeah. know, yeah. And the second question then is who is your legend of leadership? I think we've spoken about him. So, <laughs> well, let's I, give I him think, another mention. Yeah, John I th- Teeling. I, th- I think John Teeling. Like I, as I said, I managed to catch up with him during the week, and he hasn't changed in in like not one bit in all the years I've known him. Yeah. And it was like you know, like talking to him as though I'd met him when I was fifteen. You know, it's just he's an incredible, um, just the passion and the 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 whole, the whole talent of entrepreneurship. And I, I think what is best about him is just the simplicity with how he just says, you know, you're making stuff and you're selling stuff and, you know, do both well. Yeah. Make it well, sell it well, and it's fine. The power of clarity, the power of simplicity. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Colin. Thanks, uh, Thanks very much for joining us. Great. Thank uh, you. On Life and Leadership, and we wish you well in all your endeavours. Great. Thanks very Thank much, you. Bobby. Thank you. Life and Leadership with Bobby Kerr. A News Talk original. Brought to you by Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows.